Matthew's Gospel. And I'll be reading from verse 33. Jesus is telling a parable uh, to the religious leaders of the day. Well, let me pray for us, and then I'll read it. Our Father, we confess that we often come uh, to worship you uh, with hearts uh, cold and not ready to receive your word. Pray that you would uh, warm them by your spirit now and that you pierce them uh, through your words so that your gospel may flood in. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 33. Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the servant... Uh, and when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants, the tenants, to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, and killed another, and stoned another. And again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Doctor Who. Uh, Doctor Who has been around uh, long enough that most of you, whether you're a Doctor Who fan or not, should have watched an episode of it. Um, and if you haven't, uh, then you might not understand the illustration, but I hope it will still work. Do- Doctor Who is a character who travels through space and time, and sometimes and often lands uh, on foreign lands in, in space or in, in our own history. And when she does, or he does, she, uh, the doctor, is a new, as a girl. Uh, when she does, uh, she often assumes command. That she has the right to do as she pleases. Uh, and uh, there's often a, a commander, a king, who's there. Uh, he says, how dare you? How dare you come into my space and into my territory and take over my authority? Who are you? And the doctor replied, I'm the doctor. And classically, the person says, Doctor Who? Sometimes we feel that way about Jesus, don't we? Particularly maybe if you're not a Christian here this morning, you know that Jesus makes demands on your life. You maybe heard a little bit of the gospel. Jesus says, come, follow me. Live the way that I tell you to live. How dare you? Who on earth do you think you are? Or perhaps if you're a Christian and you have come to Christ and you do rejoice in that, uh, but sometimes when Jesus commands you or when you read God's word, you just feel 
a quiet resistance in your heart uh, to what's being said. Well, something like that is going on in our passage this morning. Just to put it in context, uh, Jesus has uh, rode uh, into Jerusalem. He's come uh, looking like a king and receiving the praise of a king. And he's gone and entered into the temple and cleansed it, thrown out the moneylenders and the dealers there. He's acted as one with uh, authority. And so verse 23, the, the religious people who assume they have the right and the authority over the temple come to him and say, verse 23, just before our passage, well, what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And the parable I just read uh, is one of the ways Jesus is responding to that challenge. And this morning it reveals three things to us. It reveals what we have done in the parable itself. It reveals what God has done. And then challenges us with a question. What will we do? What will we do? So let's dig into it. Let's look at, you. Let's look at it. Let's look at the parable. Uh, what we have done. What we have done. First act of the parable starts with a, an initially uh, peaceful picture, doesn't it? There's a man, he plants a vineyard and he gives it everything it needs. The first act is one of complete provision. It has a fence to protect it. And he builds a wine press and a tower. It has all it needs uh, to produce fruit. And then he leaves it in the hands of others. He leases it to tenants, verse 33, and goes away. You can always imagine him walking out the gate, looking back over his shoulder and saying, I've given you everything you need. You have it all. You have it all. And then verse 34 to 36, we have the second act and the picture changes. Maybe you know, we've seen a film, maybe you've got a boat in the water and it's all calm and sunny. And suddenly the wind picks up and the dark clouds begin to gather and the waves crash against the boat. It's a bit like that here. The master has provided everything and so he has a rightful expectation of, of, of fruit. It's his vineyard. And he sends servants to collect the fruit. But what do they do when the servants come? They took them, beat one, and killed another. The waves crash and the lightning flashes. The peace of the first verse turns to war and outright rebellion. Why? Well, presumably they don't want to hand over any of the fruit. They want to keep uh, the fruit uh, for themselves. It's a total denial of the right and the authority that the master has who planted the vineyards. They take the servants and smash them to silence, ignoring the authority of the master. And verse 36 is scarcely believable, is it? Uh, instead of coming down upon the tenants with the full force of the law, as was his right to do, what does the master do? Well, he shows remarkable patience and mercy. He sends more servants to them. It's almost like he's saying, change your ways. There's still time. I'm not coming in judgment on you yet. Even though you deserve it for killing the first lot of servants, respond to these ones. Respond to these ones. What do they do? They do the same thing to them. Verse 36. And then... We have the final act, the climax, uh, the pinnacle of the drama Jesus tells. Verse 37, the master says, 
They will respect my son. I'll send my son to them and they will respect him. They will yield to him. He comes not just with derived authority, like my servants, but he goes with inherent authority. He has the right to command in himself. It is his father's vineyard. It's like it's the pinnacle of the patience and the pinnacle of the mercy of the master. And it is met with the pinnacle of the wickedness of the tenants. What do they say? This is the heir. Let's take him and kill him. And so they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and kill him. They dump his body in the back of the truck and they drive off, leaving him beside the road, deserted and despised, left to rot and be eaten by crows. And in what they say, the motive is laid bare. Let's kill him, verse 38, and have his inheritance. They know he's the heir, don't they? They know he's the son. This is the heir, they say. So if we kill him, we'll have what he has. It's the same desire that, according to legend, uh, drove King John to kill his nephews, if you know your history. Or perhaps more, uh, more familiarly, if you know Brutus. It's that same desire that drove Brutus to stab Julius Caesar. Yeah, it's the desire for control. And it, and it comes from the, the belief that there is more to gain uh, by grabbing control. Whatever the cost, however you get it, there's more to gain by grabbing control. And of course, as the parable finishes, we see it's foolishness. How, how on earth do they think they could get away with it? Do they think the master would never come? Never respond to what they did? That you'd just stay away in a far off land forever? No, as the Pharisees themselves say, verse 41, the master will put those wretches to a wretched and miserable death. Now, as I've said already, Jesus is speaking to the religious elite here. They're challenging his authority. And they are those who are learned in the law. They are those who pride themselves on knowing the scriptures. And so as Jesus begins his parable, verse 33, as he tells the story of a master who plants a vineyard and provides everything for it, the religious leaders listening to him would have known, ha, huh, that's Isaiah chapter 5, where Isaiah preaches to the people of God and says that God planted a vineyard, which is Israel. And so as the Pharisees are listening to Jesus, they'll know that the parable is about Israel uh, and about them as well. And the story of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5, uh, what, are they, what happens there? Well, God looks for fruit in the vineyard and it produces bad fruit or no fruit. And we get a picture of Israel. If the story of the vineyard is the story of Israel, and then despite God providing everything that Israel needs, his word, the temple, the priesthood, a king, Everything they need to worship him, to follow him, to obey him, to walk in his way, despite doing all of that, they don't. The story of Israel is the story of God sending prophet after prophet to his people, pleading with them to return to the Lord, to repent, and not to persist in fruitlessness. And a picture of the tenants attacking the servants is that picture of God's people mistreating God's prophets. 
couple of examples, 2 Chronicles chapter 24, Zechariah goes to the people of God and says, why do you not obey the commandments of God? Why do you not walk in God's ways? What happens to him? He's stoned on order of the king. Elijah, think of Elijah, as you probably don't often do, but think of Elijah. What do you think of? We think of a man banished in a desert, cut off from society during his time. Jezebel, the, the classic evil queen, killed hundreds of the prophets of the Lord. The story of the vineyard that Jesus just told is a story of Israel. And the sting in the tale is this, that as he speaks to the elders and the chief priests, he says to them, you are the final act. The outright rebellion of God's people up to this point, of their priests, of their kings, of their elders, is capped by you. You are the crown on their evil foreheads. You are the sharp knife edge of their barbarity. You are the final act. You will kill me, God's own son. You will take me. And they do. Matthew 26, verse 50. They came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. You will throw me out of the vineyard. Uh, And they do. They take him to Golgotha, Matthew 27, verse 33, away from Jerusalem, away from the temple. That is his right to rule. And you will kill me. And they do. Verse 27, verse 35 of Matthew. They crucified him. Why? Why did they do it? Why did they crucify Lord Jesus, because they thought there's more to gain by grabbing control. The chief priests, the elders of the people that had been given authority over God's people, they are the tenants. But they wanted more than that. They wanted the vineyard to be their vineyard, to be subject to none, and to be in control. The self is in the centre. I guess in, in words, they're the religious leaders, in words, they looked like they loved God and served him. They spoke the right things. But in heart, they wanted to be God and to have what he had. And what's the worst thing about it? What's the worst thing about this parable? It's their open eyes. Their open eyes. They did it with eyes wide open. This is the heir, verse 38. They know who he is. It's easy to think that when you think of the, the, the story of Jesus' crucifixion, that the Pharisees were making some massive mistake and they didn't really realise. Yes, they were hungry for power and control, um, but they didn't really think Jesus was the Messiah. It's an innocent mistake in that sense. But Jesus looks in their open eyes in this parable, he's speaking to them, and says, you know who I am. And you may delude yourself so well that you think you don't. And you think that I'm not God's Messiah. But deep down, you know who I am. You know I have the authority that I claim. And yet you're still going to kill me. A full expression of refusing Christ's authority, which is what the, the, the elders and the Pharisees, the religious elite in Jesus' time, had been doing all the way through. The full expression of that is crucifying Christ himself. That is the height of their rebellion. It's actually the pinnacle of man's sin. And it lifts the lid on our hearts. It lifts the lid on our hearts. Pharisees' hearts. With a brief illustration here, but the Pharisees' hearts. 
Think of your least favorite food. Children, uh, think of your least favorite food. What makes you go, what? Uh, for me, it's uh, a vegetable called okra. Imagine a slug uh, and wrap it up uh, in a kind of like a tough, crunchy vegetable skin. I feel like okra is like, it's revolting. You put it in your mouth and you, you get through your tough outer layer and it squeezes goo and seeds across your palate. It is disgusting. Open up the Pharisee's heart, and what do you find? Well, you find a pile of okra, slimy and gross. In this moment, as they are rejecting Christ's authority, that's what you find. You lift, on, lift, 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 lift the lid on our hearts. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, you have come to Christ, which is kids, and you have submitted to his authority by coming to the Saviour and Lord, and that is good, so don't mishear me. Um, but it's easy, because we've done that, to initially think that our hearts are basically a pretty nice dish, pretty delicious. Uh, but to our horror, when we look more closely, what do we find hiding behind the meatballs? We find sliced okra. And it's horrific. It ruins the dish. pollutes it. Sin ultimately is rejecting God's authority over my life. And the full expression of sin that we see in Scripture is when they crucify Christ, when mankind killed God's son, that is like sin on steroids, that is evil turbocharged. But when we look at ourselves as Christians, what do we find in our hearts? If we look closely, we find the flavour of okra. We find echoes of the Pharisees' attitude. Now, sometimes we sin uh, and we don't realise it, okay? Now, we do have, we have sinful hearts and sin comes out of us unintentionally. Scripture says we are like shackled to sin. And one of the things Christ is doing is unshackling us. So our hearts become more and more as they should. But we also so often sin with our eyes wide open. Deliberate sin. If I ask you, think of the last time you know you did something wrong. What does that show? You think in your head. Think of the last time you know you did something wrong. What does that show? It shows that you knew it was wrong. We know what the Lord God commands us. We know what Jesus requires of us. And so often we do what we know is wrong. We sneak onto the website. We know we should. We we allow the angry thoughts to keep boiling and bubble over into actions. We allow jealousy to work into our hearts. We don't kill it. We let it fester, poisoning our speech. And even even there's no action, no words, no visible sign. Sometimes we have, as I said at the beginning, that quiet resistance to Christ's authority. Christ says, you need to live like this. And we say, I just don't really want to. It's easy to pretend we're innocent, isn't it? We don't know what we're doing. We didn't think it was wrong. It's easy to pretend we're helpless. It was too strong for us. It's easy to pretend that it's our circumstances. It was her fault. It was his fault. It was that thing that pushed me over the edge. But we know what Christ has commanded. If you sin and in the moment you also know what Christ has commanded, then it is rebellion and we do it anyway. In our hearts you have an echo of the Pharisees' cry to crucify Christ. And why do we do it? Because we think there's more to gain by grabbing control. That the way I want to live despite what Christ has said, it is the better way to live. This is actually where culture's message to us, the narrative of our culture is so poisonous because it tells us to put ourselves in the centre and that the best life you can live is to fully express what you find in your hearts, what you want to do. 
But that is a lie. Partly because our hearts are sinful. But it's also a lie because we live in a world ruled by Christ. And any misery will result. It is foolish to think that Christ will ignore our rebellion. It's meant to shock us. That what they did, what the Pharisees did, in refusing the authority of the Lord Jesus, rejected him, crucified him, in our eyes, wide open sin, if you like. We find an echo of that in our hearts. What we have done. But what God has done, verse 42, what God has done. And this is the beginning of the good news. Jesus quotes Psalm 118 here. And he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvellous in our eyes. Psalm 118, I think, is about Israel and a song about how Israel has been rejected by the nations and yet is the centre of what God is up to. Israel is a rejected stone. And Jesus is saying, uh, by quoting it here, he's saying, that's true of Israel, but that is true of me in a fuller sense. I am the rejected stone. And I've been rejected by builders. I've been rejected by people who should know what they're doing. In this case, uh, the religious elite. And they've examined me and found me not fit for purpose. And then just like a crane might pick up a block which has been rejected and dump it uh, in, in the courtyard. So Christ has been rejected. It's in, it's in our wisdom, it's like mankind's wisdom. And we deem life to be better without Christ, that we perceive him to be a threat to our control, that we decide that we're good enough without him, that we don't need him. It's unnecessary. The stone the builders have rejected. And that is a picture of the cross. But through the cross, the rejected stone has become the raised stone, has become the corner stone. And this is what God has done. The corner stone not familiar with it. The cornerstone is a stone like that holds it all together in a structure. Think of, a, think of an archway where you've got stones piled up on top of each other and they go up and up and up and up and round. And in the middle, you've got a bigger, fatter stone. That's a bit like the cornerstone. Yank that out and the whole thing will collapse in on itself. And Jesus has become the cornerstone, the one on whom it all relies. God has taken the one that humanity has chucked out on the rubbish heap and raised him as the only source of salvation, has laid Christ down as the only one by whom we might be saved, on whom salvation rests, so there is no other name under heaven or in earth that we can find salvation from. And the Son's death has become the source of deliverance. And it's marvellous, because the one that we reject in the height of sin becomes the one that we must come to to find salvation. In the height of our rebellion, when Jesus was crucified, he, he is established as the only one by whom we might be saved. That's absolutely necessary. He's absolutely central to receive salvation. If we want eternal life, we have to come to him. Isn't that amazing? That the, the one rejects it, becomes the one I have to come to and bow down and receive from all the good things that God gives us. When my sin was at its pinnacle, 
when it was at its fullest expression, God's grace is poured out most lavishly. That, in fact, the acts in mankind's history that should have sealed God's wrath for all of us brings his grace to bound on us. The man crucified and aboard becomes a man crowned and whom we adore. Again, that in the world's darkest hour, darkest hour in our history, God pierces it, pierces it with, with the brightest light, that out of the grave become, comes eternal life. In that sense, God is glorified on the cross. His love is glorified. His mercy is glorified because it's poured out at our worst moment. It's scarcely believable. As the, as the verse says, they're not marvellous in our eyes. This is how I know, by the way, God loves me if I come to him and, and submit to Christ's authority, how, how he will have mercy on me. Because he poured his grace out in the world's darkest hour. Look at the cross. Finally, what will we do? That's what, God has, that's what we have done. That's what God has done. What will we do? God has laid Christ down as the cornerstone and either he can become your sanctuary or your stumbling block. He can become your sanctuary or your stumbling block. You can either stumble on Christ or humble yourself before Christ and receive him as your sanctuary. Briefly first, stumble on Christ. First option. Speaking I think, largely to any of you here who are visiting us and wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You haven't yet come to the Lord Jesus for salvation. Perhaps also some of us who might be persisting in open-eyed sin, refusing to repent of it. The parable is a warning to us. How do the Pharisees respond to it? Verse 45 and 46. And they perceived him speaking about them, that they were rejecting his authority, and they wanted to arrest him. So they plough on in their uh, rebellion. Jesus' words feel like his warning, his offer actually of, of don't do this. This is what you're going to do, don't do it. It is ignored and confirms them in what they do. And verse 44, before that, it is sobering, isn't it? There is a reckoning. God has set Christ on his throne, on his holy hill. He does demand allegiance to him. So if you pull him down, I don't want Christ, I don't want his authority. You pull him down, it says, on top of you. What does it look like? Let me suggest two ways. You can stumble over him. The Christian, when he looks at the Lord Jesus, torn and bloody and rejected, despised, if you like, a symbol of all we don't want to be, looks at him and says, I need him. I must have him. My heart is so dark that without him, I am lost. To stumble on that uh, would be to look at him and say, I do not need that. I am not that bad. I don't need a crucified king. Or you can stumble under him. Christ has been set by God um, to rule. The gospel comes and says, Jesus is Lord. Come and worship. Come bow down. And the response is, how dare you? I will not do that. I will not have someone else come into my life, into my territory and tell me what to do. And the reality, Jesus says, a stumbling. The one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. 
and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The other option, this is the better option, humble yourself before Christ. Jesus says the vineyard will be taken from the tenants and be handed over to others who will produce fruit. Israel should have been producing fruit, but the vineyard will be taken to them and given to others. And, and that is the church today. And Christ is the cornerstone of that church. And yet as Christians, we sometimes fail to see that coming under Christ as our cornerstone is marvellous. To see that yielding to his authority is good. You often think of it as something I must do. It's the right thing to do, but I don't love it. It might be a burden. I have to obey the Lord Jesus. He is my authority and leaves a heavy weight in our hearts. It might be costly because you know that to submit to Christ means that you can't build your life on something else. My life has to be about him, not my family, not my career, although it's still good to invest in those things. But the centre, the cornerstone, has to be Christ. You might be fearful coming to the Lord Jesus. You might be fearful because you know what you're like and you know what's in your heart. And when you come to Christ, you have to bear it all before God to come to terms with who you are. And it's just much easier to ignore my sin and pretend it's not there. So for all those struggles, we need to look to Christ and see what kind of cornerstone he is. As we finish, Isaiah, don't need to now, I'll read it out, turn that, I'll read it out for us. Isaiah 28, Isaiah 28, verse 16, where we see um, the Lord God speaking about making Christ the cornerstone. He says, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, Lord Jesus, a tested stone, a precious stone cornerstone of a sure foundation. Why has Jesus been made our cornerstone? Well, first, God says he's been tested. He's a tester stone. He has proved his obedience to the Lord God on earth, that he alone has utmost commitment to God's law and God's ways. And what does that mean? Well, it means that he perfectly loves God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength and he perfectly loves his neighbour as himself, loves his people who come to him. That's worth saying, that's what the Pharisees are not. That's what we fear in authority, isn't it? We, we fear a burden placed on us. The one we come under in authority will be cruel to us. And actually, that's what the Pharisees are like. But Christ is not. He is a servant king who seeks the good of his people. And ultimately, we see that again by, by the fact he goes to the cross, that he dies for us. We come and serve a king who was despised for our sake. He died for you. It's one of the clear things that comes out when you read through scriptures. Uh, he welcomes, for example, little children. He's humble enough to do that. Children, he welcomes you, the Lord Jesus. That's what kind of king he is. He wants to know you. It's not a burden to serve him. He's a precious stone. He's God's beloved son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased, God says. You might know the story of uh, Midas. I'm sure we've mentioned it many times. Midas, who, who touches stuff and it turns to gold. And that story ends up being a curse for him. There's something similar with Christ. Christ is God's precious son. And when we come to us, he touches us. What happens? Well, we become precious before God, become adopted into his family, become his sons and his daughters. The delight the Lord God has in Jesus becomes the delight 
that he has in us. So even if we're fearful and sinful and afraid, we don't need to fear. He will welcome us in. And he's a sure foundation. He's a sure foundation. We all build our lives on something, don't we? There's something we must centre what we do around, whatever it is. But there's only one thing that won't fail, and that is Christ. Everything else will crumble, whether it's now, tomorrow, or on the day of your death, it will crumble, but he will not. And he is the one who protects his own. The wonder is that when I humble myself under Christ, I become part of his vineyard. And God hasn't now handed his vineyard over to this religious elite who abuse their authority and power, but he's handed over to Christ. Christ is the one who now tends God's vineyards. It's like the son has taken charge of his inheritance. So whatever prevents you, whatever makes you resist Christ's authority in your life, even if it's hard, even the difficult things, see that it is good and that he is a good cornerstone. Let me pray for us. I surrender all, all to Christ, all to Christ I surrender. Father, we confess that we find that difficult. That our hearts are naturally sinful and we turn from Christ. We often sin with our eyes wide open. And it feels a burden to come to him as our king and submit to him and to receive all that we have from him. So pray uh, by your grace and by your spirit this week, I'll be transforming our hearts more and more so we are those who gladly say, I will worship him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.